You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Tom, Nate, it's great to have you back on. Um, your recent article in the OC Register touches on something that many people have been trying to bring up, but it seems to have basically fallen on deaf ears over the last year. And you would think with the pandemic, with the lockdowns, with supply shortages, with scalpers, with all the things that are currently messing around with the economy, our food would not be something that we want to mess with. So when I read your piece and I was basically rediscovering how one hack can destroy an entire system, how one disrupt in the beef pipe, in in like the beef supply line can go ahead and affect millions of people, it, it really made me feel vulnerable in the sense that, oh my gosh, we are all just one day away from not having enough meat on the shelves. And I remember how things were of toilet paper. And that's not a world I want to live in. So well, welcome back. Give us a little breakdown of your piece and what what is going on with it as of right now with the Prime Act and everything else involved. Yeah, um, I'm so happy to be back here, Remzo. Um, so as you just mentioned, um, in the past year, we've seen a lot of ups and downs when it comes to our food prices. Um, I don't know if you remember this. Maybe it was here in like more, more like metropolitan area that happened, but you know, last year I went to a store in Beverly Hills and I saw the sign that only two packs per customer for for beef, and I was so surprised. Like, why is this even happening? This is America, and. I went and researched a bunch and I realized that there is a huge, huge disruption in our supply chain uh, because of COVID. Well, of course, there was COVID and everyone's, you know, locked down, no one's going to work. But we have so many cows in this country. We have so many farms. Then, like, why would this happen on such a large scale? And something I discovered uh, was, well, our food industry, our meat industry in particular, is very monopolized. And that's thanks to federal red tapes. And um, just to give you like a little bit of a, like a background about how this works. Uh, well, um, four major meat companies known as the big four dominate the American meat market, JBS, National Beef, Tyson Foods, and Cargill. So JBS and Tyson Foods control about 40% of the poultry market JBS and the three other companies um, control nearly 70% of the pork market. But that's huge. Another thing is, so when you buy your beef uh, or just any sort of meat at the store, there are several steps behind behind that. So you have your farmers and your, um, you know, cattle owners and all that, you know, owning the animal and sending it to a processing plant. 
And then from there, it's being processed and packed and then sold to the customers. So the issue was not the cattle farmers or anything like that. The issue was the processing step, which was disrupted. And that's because of the monopolies that exist. And this is why we have all these issues. We have all these price hikes. And now the latest news that everyone has heard was a cyber attack um, on JBS. And, and I mean, it wasn't even like two months ago that that Dominion pipeline got hacked. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, it was very close. Yeah, g- gas right now is still being impacted by that, and it's so crazy because not not to get into too much of a rabbit hole, but I was just leaving DC at the time, and gas had been like under two fifty for at least a couple of months now ridiculously higher than how it was six months prior to Biden coming in. But now it was touching like, um, you know, three, $3 plus. And I mean, now I'm here in Wisconsin and gas for regular and lead is about three nineteen, and, and it's, it's crazy because it's a lot of things. The fact that Biden no longer wants us to be an energy independent, but for a while you had a lot of, um, you know, gas companies basically saying, well, it's a result of that hack. Well, that hack only affected like, the East Coast. And when we really narrow it down, it was Virginia, D.C., Maryland, and North Carolina. And it only lasted for about a week. And then when they really looked into it, they were like, this is, this is not a big, sophisticated hack. It was a phishing scheme. A guy clicked on the wrong email. It gave him that little pop-up that said, update your spyware. And that took over his computer and said, send me Bitcoin. So when we really break it down to see what happened, it's really terrifying how vulnerable all of these systems are. And the last time you were on, we spoke about the cyber threat of China. We know that our electrical system is incredibly unprotected, both physically and in the cyberspace. We just saw what happened with a very large oil producer, I'm sorry, gas producer. And now we're looking at the source of our food. And it's like, this This is 2021. We should not be back looking at this stuff thinking, wow, is one fishing scheme going to go ahead and screw over everyone's life, especially after the year we've just had? Absolutely. And I saw this uh, tweet um, by one of the readers that read my article, and they said that food security is supposed to be national security. And I absolutely agree with that. I mean, what is more more important than food security when it comes to like a society? Just look back into the history when uh, there was this Lord attacking another Lord. What they did was that they would siege the castle. And what that meant was they would cut off all the supply lines and all the food lines. The people would start starving in each castle till they would give up. And that's um, now on a very larger scale, it, it, it can happen. And the issue is just because uh, we have enabled this centralized system, um, we are now vulnerable. Uh, and a lot of it has to do a lot with USDA regulations and a lot of K Street interests lobbying and subsidizing these businesses and these four companies I just talked about. And since those companies own like this whole like big they they own one step of your food if there is one little issue with their system we're all screwed for a very long time and just to kind of like talk about um the actual cyber attack and what i talked about in my article was um you know because of the regulations that are put in place our cattle farmers uh, or meat producers are not able to process their meat where they are. So they depend on these companies to have their meat 
a process and then hand it to the customer. And because of that, they depend on the centralized system. So after the cyber attack happened in J on JBS, uh, like all the plants actually closed across the U.S. And the CEO just um, said last week that they paid like $11 million of ransom to the attackers so they can have all their data kind of like opened up again so they can go back to work. But they were closed for a whole week. Imagine the entire meat industry was not producing anything for an entire weekend. This is a big country, Rem. So this is a country that is a, is a huge meat consumer. This is one of our foundational uh, diet. It's our foundation of our diet. So when this happens, what, what do you expect? Price hacks. The consumers are the ones who will be paying uh, for this cyber attack. And the reason is all because of the federal red tapes that are in place preventing our small farmers to have their own process uh, going on. Yeah. I mean, your average American family is only like three meals away from starvation because we don't think long-term. We don't really think in terms of how would we react during an emergency. I think COVID and everything really changed how people react to that stuff. You know, everyday people are now becoming like little pseudo preppers, which I think is better than not. But like, I remember as a kid, there was an episode like Battlestar Galactica on sci-fi. And as basically the Cylons have destroyed their planet. Um, they're trying to basically figure out how much food they need on like their other ship where it's like their farm ship to produce, to feed all the refugees and all the soldiers and everything. And the lead scientist is like, we need 15,000 pounds of chicken, of wheat, of all this other stuff. And it's like big numbers. And like the Admiral is like, okay, that's going to feed us for like a year. Right. And the guy's like, no, it's going to feed us for five days. And they're just like, we're, we don't have what we need for this. And, And realistically, that is how things are now. That That is, you know, we're living in a state of basically artificial peace. Everything around us is just one very bad day away from turning into something like the purge. But with the Prime Act specifically, th- this is coming along with a lot of um, other things we've seen over the last decade, especially when it comes to farm freedom, to actually getting more food freedom. Uh, I-, I remember the first time I was told that raw milk was illegal, in most states. And I'm just like, not that I want to drink it anytime soon, but like, you're telling me that that's a, that's a federal crime. And you know, like if, if you go to a small farmer, who's really just a self-sustaining independent farmer anywhere in the rural South, you can buy like, you know, a rack of ribs, you could buy large amounts of beef and chicken and other stuff. But when you're dealing with these larger farms that are actually like, you know, partially owned or contracted by a company, they're not allowed to do that at all. So what the Prime Act does, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically going to say that in dire situations where the supply lines are constantly, you know, in a state of flux as to whether or not they can get this meat out to people, rather than just throwing it in the trash or getting rid of it and letting it spoil, you can actually reach out to individual distributors in your region and you can sell directly to them. And yes, Rem, so you're absolutely right. Uh, What the Prime Act does is that it kind of cuts out that federal red tape that prevents um, you from being able to buy more meat from your local producer. So right now, if... um, a cattle farmer wants to sell their meat, they have to check certain boxes uh, by the USDA and FDA and all that. They have to have an in-house inspector like all the time. 
to make sure their meat is like healthy, whatever. They, they have to check all the boxes for them. And of course it's needed. I mean, we saw COVID happen and that happened from, from a, a meat market. So you don't want to have any diseases coming out of it. So, I mean, yes, that's understandable. We want to make sure um, our food is um, not contaminated, but that doesn't require like a full-time inspector all the time in the house, something that a lot of uh, farmers cannot afford uh, because they have to pay for that, of course. And um, some other issues concerning um like safety regulation and things like that, uh, a lot of these do not really help uh, to make our food like healthier. They are just in place to kind of prevent competition. And a lot of it is because those major meat processing companies have a lot of lobbyists going and talking to all these uh, members of Congress. And, you know, you and I know how that works. Uh, and unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's going to hurt uh, a lot of our small cattle farmers and consumers. So what the Prime Act does, it kind of cuts through all of that. It will not compromise the safety of the meat because our farmers will still be um, subjected to unannounced uh, inspections all the time. Uh, what it does is that kind of lifts the restriction, the federal restriction and give the, gives the power back to the state to regulate their own um, food industry as they uh, see fit, because not every state has the same um, number of plants or the same number of um, cattle farms. Some states don't even have anything to do with it. Um, so what this does is that it, it pretty much gives more power to the states to actually take care of their own farmers and consumers. Uh, just to kind of give you the lay of the land, like maybe in practice, for example, um, Thomas Massey himself has told this story a lot of times about how this works. He's a cattle farmer himself in Kentucky. He told us that if a cow farmer in Kentucky wants to have their own meat produced and then sold back to Kentucky, they have to send their cattle all the way to Colorado to one of these big processing plants and then sent back again to Kentucky. Who's paying for that? The consumers at the end of the day. So imagine if that little like supply line is disrupted in Colorado, there's no meat in Kentucky because they don't have that plant with those federal standards there. Now you can kind of realize how bad the situation is. And the stakes are pretty high. And this is not something you and I would like normally think about when we're like eating our burger, um, that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So I can have this on my plate. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to say like my my concern is like, you know, the quality of what's getting put out there. Like that, that that doesn't worry me as much as the centralization of it all. Because when you can go ahead and close down, you know, like let's say a pipeline in the, on the East Coast that only supplies gas to a couple of states, when you can target just one meat, meat, uh, meat producer that can go ahead and feed, you know, a, a whole region, the fact that there is so much power focused in keeping those institutions in place means that when they screw up, everyone else is basically on the pike. And the Prime Act is not trying to necessarily destroy that. The Prime Act is basically just saying, like, listen, there are situations where it makes sense to get the meat and get all this other stuff out to market instead of just letting it spoil. 
Because exactly. that was the other thing. Like there was one point where, um, you know, I think it was the Dairy Producers of America, whatever big organization oversees uh, dairy production in the United States, you had a lot of stores that were not able to go ahead and sell enough milk. So what did all these all these people who had all these giant containers of milk do? They started pouring it out. Exactly. You're telling me that they couldn't find somebody else somewhere else in the country who would want to buy it? Oh, and here's the other thing that really bothered me. You can't donate it. You can't no. say, I'm taking this to a homeless shelter. You can't say, I'm taking this to a soup kitchen. I'm donating this to a church because then they might not have the proper facilities for it. I'm like, well, you know what? I'd rather take a risk on them than just dump it out. Yeah. And that would be a, like, a, actually, that would be a crime if you did that. If you just like sold the meat without like all those, you know, things checked off the box, all those like box checked off. That would be considered a crime in the U.S. if you just sold your meat um, by yourself locally without having that process in place. And again, that sounds quite arbitrary to me because, I mean, we've been doing, I mean, we've been dealing with animals since the beginning, beginning of humankind. Like we started as hunters and gatherers and then we domesticated animals and all that. And so far, we have been able to take care of our own meat and keep it healthy and eat it and process it and all that. So so I would be surprised that, I mean, the federal government is telling the farmers that, no, you guys are not um, vetted enough or you're not good enough to process your own meat and sell it to your like local um, consumers. And another thing that really bothers me, as you mentioned, was the issue of throwing away uh, your meat. I mean, we're living in in the world where a lot of people are, are starving, and of course, you don't want the prices of meat to go even higher when you actually have the supply and the demand. You're just letting the supply to go away. During uh, COVID lockdowns, that happened. A lot of farmers could not process their meat in time, and they, a lot of it went to waste. It wasn't that we didn't have enough meat it was just we didn't have enough processing plants i mean open. it's like it's like that with vegetables too like I, I i think one of like the funniest organizations in like the activist realm is food not bombs have you ever heard of those guys no but that's oh i'm about to change your life i'm about to change your life girl um Food Not Bombs was started in the during the Vietnam War in the United States, and it was basically a hippie movement saying that for all the money we're spending on war and bombs, we could use it to help feed people. Now, what they then started doing after Vietnam was that they basically moved all their stuff from being anti-war to being anti-food waste. So what they do now is they go dumpster diving behind grocery stores and restaurants where they have to mandatorily throw away food after a certain date, regardless as to whether or not it's actually spoiled or gone bad. So then what they do is they take this stuff out of the garbage, they wash it, and then they cook meals for homeless people in the street. And I shit you not, I was at a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2016. And um, it was basically for, for a boss of mine who was holding a town hall meeting, you know, we're, we're hateful, evil, bigoted people. So they decided to show up and yell at us. And, uh, I had realized that I had not eaten anything. And my fiance, who was then just my girlfriend at the time, we're just walking around. We're just like, we're not going to be able to go get food for a while. So we walked into the crowd of angry protesters and in the middle of them are like these Cheech and Chong dudes who have like this giant crock pot. 
and they're giving out bowls of soup to people. And I'm like, holy crap, they brought food. The lefties are organized. So we walked over, and it was a bowl of minestrone soup. And I'm just like, this is awesome. How much is it? And they're like, it's free, man. And I'm like, this is delicious. What you put in there? And he's giving me the whole recipe. I'm putting it down on my iPhone. I'm like, this is amazing. It's better than the stuff in the can. And he's like, yeah, man, can you believe this all came from the garbage? And I'm like, what? And then he told me what they do and how they do it. And I looked at him and I'm like, this is the best garbage meal I've had in my life. <laughs> oh, my God. And it's things like that where it's like I, I know I know people who are restaurant owners. And what they try and do is at the end of the week, like one guy was a ba- owns a bagel shop and stuff like that. They will take all the leftover bagels that are that are not like, you know bland or anything and they'll actually give them to a homeless shelter but if those bagels were on the shelf for like an hour more legally he would have to throw them away so there are laws in place preventing grocery stores and restaurants from donating food to these organizations because they're either too close to the expiration line or they're after the expiration line. But anyone that's ever lived in the real world knows that just because something says it's expired on the packet doesn't necessarily mean it's bad right then. So it's stuff like that where it's like, listen, if the trash soup hippie guy can make a good point that changed my outlook on this, there's probably a lot of other problems. Exactly. And uh, oh, that stuff and, is so good, too. Oh, man. Now, and now you're tempting me. <laughs> I should go I'm, find I'm, the garbage. Just, just, just go just go behind like your local grocery store. And you're like, these these tomatoes are still fresh. Oh, my gosh. That's interesting because America has this international reputation of being the biggest food waster, aside from being the biggest military. Uh, I mean, owning the biggest military and like the world superpower, also the worst food waster. And now I see like why that reputation is actually well deserved. And that's sad because, I mean, I'm not like thinking that far. OK, like how can we get the food to like all these like other nations that need it, but also locally. I mean, we have um, a lot of issues in California when it comes to homelessness and people actually not being able to afford food. I remember uh, when I went to community college at Pierce, we had food pantries. We had all these activist groups on campus trying to help students that were, that were dealing with food insecurity. That's something that maybe you and I might not think about on top of our head, that you don't have to be homeless to be hungry. You don't have to be like across the world, like, you know, in some deserted village without any rain to be hungry. Do, do you remember the, uh, the, uh, the Obama meals when Obama was president? His this wife is was before trying. The, yeah. Before okay. my time. I was so, here, so, Oh, this will, this will blow your mind. So Michelle Obama was trying to basically reinvent school lunches and she was trying to make school lunches more healthy, but she sucked at it. So what she basically convinced the Department of Education and all these other organizations to do was to create healthier meals. So they wrote this giant code of what constitutes a healthy meal. But a lot of their alternatives were actually too expensive for most school districts throughout the country to afford. So what they started doing was they actually started cutting the amount, the portion of a student's lunch. So there were students throughout the country, this is around the time that Instagram was becoming more of a popular thing for younger people, they were taking photos of their lunch and it would be like an apple 
and three like those smiley face French fries. Do you have you seen those? The, the potato smiles. It's basically a French fry like cake, but it has like a smile poked in to mock you as you're eating it. It's disgusting. <laughs> I had to eat those all the time during public school. But it would be like an apple and three of those. And the kids were like, that's not lunch. So they would take a photo of that. Then they would say, thanks, Obama. You ruined my lunch. And it was it was terrible. It would be like a, a, a sliver of a slice of pizza that was like 90%, um, 90% like, you know, crust. And the schools are getting away with it. And it's like, well, that's your protein. Well, that's your vegetable. There's tomatoes in the sauce and stuff like that. And what got worse was at one point they started looking at independent states that were setting their own versions of these standards. And in the state of Arizona, the minimum lunch, a parent had to pack their child so that way it could be an adequate meal was a cheese sandwich. So two slices of bread and a slice of cheese. That's good. That's a good enough meal. That's crazy. And it's like, this makes no freaking sense. I've always had problems with like the food pyramid, like the fact that, you know, it's like carbs have to be a majority of it. it makes no sense. But like how we how we treat food in this country and then how the whole system works in order to get it to people, it, it makes no sense. I mean, I knew a homeless person. I'm sorry. I didn't know him as a homeless person. I knew a, uh, a teacher in high school who was homeless for like five years. And he told me that his favorite place to go get food as a homeless person was the trash can at McDonald's outside outside the door because kids will not eat most of their happy meals. So he knew at the end of the day, right before McDonald's took the trash out to the big dumpster, he could go there and he can get half a happy meal because we just throw it away. And, and it's it's so crazy too because we've got so we're, we're so abundant when it comes to our food, but we never plan, we never look into the process as to how it's getting out to people or how we're taking care of it. And then once it goes ahead and goes through these arbitrary standards, it gets to the point where it's like when you touch some of it, it's illegal. And it's like, did we not just go through the worst pandemic in American history, where we kind of need access to that? Yeah, imagine how you could actually solve a lot of those school lunch issues if, for example, your local public school had a contract with your local farm who that that was pretty close, so they did not have to pay a lot of money for transportation. And they would like deliver fresh meat to the school and they would cook like really delicious grill food for the students. And you would support your local farmers and also the students would have really good meals. I mean, their taxpayer money is paying for it anyway. So uh, it's just there's a lot of extra steps and a lot of um, money that is going wasted just because there are regulations that make that they do not make your food even better or healthier or anything. They're just there to either protect certain companies or they're just there because our politicians do not know how to do their job or both. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Tom Palmer talks about it when he would go around to do lectures on like central planning. He had like this French NGO who went to some part of Africa and they were trying to get these farmers in like the Sahara to grow soybeans. And all the farmers were like, no, we can't grow soybeans here. And the French were just like, no, nah, you, you can grow it here. Try it. And they're like, no, if we do this, it'll like destroy the soil forever. We have to grow this other stuff. And they're like, no, you see our grant giving you money says that you have to grow soybeans here. So they convince all these these farmers, I think it was like in Nigeria, actually, um, they, they convinced them to all grow soybeans. And after one season, it destroyed all the nutrients in the soil. 
So then the farmers are just like, you just destroyed our farmland. And then all the people from this French NGO were like, well, sorry, we're going home now. We guess it didn't work out. Bye. And it's just like, you should probably listen to the people actually doing this stuff instead of the people there to fix the problems. Because usually the problems are not as bad or exactly what you think they're going to be. Yes. And the farming industry is one of the one of our biggest industries in this country we are the we have like the most uh farm land in the world or we have like the giant like production here in the u.s like more than any other country by a lot of distance like oh we've got the climate US, for it alone. yes u.s is just way ahead of country any country when it comes to production of food and yet we still pay a lot for food and we have a lot of hungry people that cannot afford uh, basic meals. And that is just alarming to me. And then when I see all these regulations and all these bills and everything that is going on on the hill that is preventing consumers from getting what they need and what they want, it just really makes me angry. But to give you some good news here, uh, the Prime Act has gotten a lot of attention uh, recently. Uh, Congressman Thomas Massey just reintroduced it in this current Congress. And Members of Congress from across the aisle, it's bipartisan. Everyone knows that farming is important. Everyone has to eat. Uh, everyone has to eat. Uh, and I mean, interns on the Hill, they depend on cheap food there. <laughs> so uh, they have been supporting this bill overwhelmingly. And hopefully this time they can actually pass it. I, I mean, what else do you need to realize? <laughs> this is bad. This is bad regulation here that we need to uh, fix it. Um, the cyber attack was just one other part of it. The COVID was another. All of these are just signals from the mother nature and universe. And let your farmers sell their food locally and do not regulate them on a federal level that would hurt them and the consumers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it just makes sense at this point. And honestly, like Biden... I don't think he really like he he's not an ideological person. He doesn't care about things. And this could very easily be a win that he can just take full credit for because that's how he rolls. He he's always the person that takes full credit for things. So he'll do this and then he'll say, hey, you see, I supported this from day one. I supported this in 1890 when I first entered the Senate. Who's that guy from Kentucky talking about this? You don't know, man. Like if he just did that alone, that would make a lot of people happy and probably give that give him like a day where we're not making fun of him. But uh, I, I mean, I, I want I want to touch on this because I, it's 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 part of the whole thing. Uh, you're still in California. Yeah. OK, what's with the homeless people? I saw that Gavin Newsom got attacked and then he said, well, some people here have a different way of saying hello. And it's like, dude, you destroyed your state and now you're surprised that homeless people are throwing things at you. Did you hear about that? Um, I hear so many things every day and I'm, I'm not that one specifically, but that does not surprise me whatsoever. It was, it was a Fox report. He went down somewhere in San Francisco. He went to go get a haircut and then he went to go to like some Italian restaurant and then he's walking out and a homeless person threw a bottle of water at him. And it, it's just another situation where it's just like, you know, if you ever wanted a situation where it's like you could just look at like very authoritarian, top-down, centralized policies, and you can look at California as just one example. It's like, could you imagine how many homeless people you could feed 
if you allowed businesses to donate the food that they can't legally sell anymore. Yeah, exactly. And in California, we have uh, a lot of farming and food production. We send it across the country here. Um, and food is supposed to be way cheaper in California because um, You're getting it we make source. it here. Yeah. Yes. But not really. Like, aside from just cost of living and everything, like the taxes, the sales taxes, like whatever comes into it. And now with all these like plastic taxes and all that. So all of it kind of, you know, kind of comes together to take away your budget every day. Like, I mean, I live on a regular paycheck and still like my expenses are like, they never go down. They just go higher and I'm not buying more. I'm just one person. I'm not buying more. I'm not consuming more. It's like all of these issues coming together that is hurting me as like a normal consumer, let alone some people like homeless. I mean, they got to eat too. They can't afford it anymore. It's just impossible, let alone like all these housing crises. Oh, another thing, Rem, so that I kind of wanted to bring to your attention when we're discussing um, homelessness. So did you know that a lot of people in California are just not renting out their places anymore because of all these um, protect, I mean, protections during COVID. I mean, mean, why would you, you take in somebody, you don't know whether they're going to become squatters or not. And then if they can't pay their rent, you're not allowed to evict them. No, you're not allowed to evict them. There's no way to do it. I've heard stories from the people that I know personally that they rented out, you know, a guest house or room in their house and the people stop paying rent. And they're just like, you're either going to pay us $15,000 or we're going to sue you for for being a bad landlord and all these people are like thinking okay like it might actually cost me less to just pay off these squatters and get rid of them than to go through a lawsuit that could go on for years and years and i might not win because of all these regulations put into place that is actually hurting homeowners and it's not even helping the renters because no one's giving out their home for rent. So therefore, if I want to rent a place and I want to actually pay for it, I can't anymore. I can't afford it because the supply is just so low and the demand is so high. So that's why if you want to rent a very, very small place in, you know, San Fernando Valley, where I live, it's like $2,000 minimum for just like a dumpster. You see, after this, you're going to start dumpster diving for food. Oh, I man. mean, it's just I we're th- this this whole this whole topic. While some people might think, you know, is it is it outlandish thinking to think that this could really happen? It's like, no, this is all in the realm of possibility. It happened, and it like just you saw happened. how, yeah, I mean, you see you see how people are when they couldn't get toilet paper, or bottled water in time. Imagine what's going to happen when people start going hungry. I just don't want to think about it personally. It makes me uncomfortable because I've seen po- like I've seen actual poverty because I lived. In, in, in Iran, I've seen people like going hun- hungry in certain places thanks to the government, not because the country is poor by itself. And I just can't imagine that happening in America. Like, I, I just don't want to see it happen. Like, I don't want it to happen while I'm alive. And that's why I'm, I'm just super passionate about this issue, even though uh, I'm a political science person, yeah. uh, because it, it will impact everyone, regardless of their status, regardless of their wealth. I mean, no matter how much money you make, if there's no meat to buy, like you can't eat your money, right? How, how do you feel about some of the people who are running 
to take out Gavin Newsom. There's one guy, he's a, he's a YouTuber. And it's so funny because I used to know him as like the finance guy. He was uh, Kevin Pafrath. His, his nickname is Meet Kevin. I look at this guy and I know he's running as a Democrat and stuff, but it's like, you know, for everything he says, that's like kind of stupid. He all says something that like, I'm like, okay, I can kind of understand that. Like he'll say like, you know, gun violence is mental violence. Then he'll say, we should probably like privatize the roads. And I'm like, okay, man, you're like, 50% there with me. But when he talks about wanting to do like uh, a state of emergency for homelessness, I almost feel like that's probably the not, not the most outlandish thing he could possibly say. Because he's like, listen, we got to get these people off the streets. They're scaring people. They're dying. They're committing crimes. Put them away somewhere. Get, get them dried out. And then try and figure out how to get them in a job placement. And it's almost like, you know... It's better than not doing anything right now because the, the whole homeless crisis was almost created by the government. I almost feel like, you know, if they're going to try and screw things up further, at least get them off the streets for a little bit so people can go out with their families again. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate. There are a lot of myths around homelessness in California in general. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, like other people from other parts of the country come here to be homeless because the weather is good. That's not true. A lot That's of not. Uh, not really. Like at Greg least Abbott tried saying that. <laughs> Greg Abbott tried saying, you know, all our homeless are going to California now because they can go ahead and sleep on your sidewalk. And it's just like, I don't know if they're going to like, if they're like, is there like a mass homeless migration, like out of a zombie apocalypse, just going West? I mean, even if that's the thing, at least it's not like a huge number there that would I would be like oh yeah that's a very I mean, there, there significant are enough, there are enough statistic. people there are enough people in California to be homeless exactly uh, a lot of the people who are homeless are, are from that like area so a lot of homeless people in Los Angeles are from Los Angeles area and for multiple reasons I mean there are mental health issues there are drug abuse issues uh, there are many things that contribute to this and at the same time the housing crisis and all these huge, like this really, really expensive cost of living that would blow anyone's mind here in California is not helping. And I know, you know, I, I've been in Virginia, I've been in other metropolitan areas and across the country, and I know there are places even more expensive than here. Our homeless people aren't real, by the way. I'll t <laughs> no, like I, I will tell you that right now. Right before I left Virginia, I saw a homeless man wearing a new pair of lucky striped jeans and a North face jacket. He was not homeless. Like yeah. there, there's this, there's this <laughs> no, like it, it's so weird right now because you go into DC and you see like the real homeless people. These are the people living like Oscar, the grouch in a trash can. Yeah. Yeah. Sesame yeah. Street. Then you've got like the new homeless people who are pulling out an iPhone talking while they're holding their cardboard sign. And it's just like, who are you? Yeah. That's, a, like, that's something I see a lot in San Francisco as well. Like they're real, like, that's their lifestyle type of thing. It's not that they're are they young. Like, um, I've seen a lot of young folks. Too. I, 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 I like I'm, I'm starting to think because I've seen like a lot of these like college age homeless people. It's like, I'm almost thinking it's a choice. I'm not saying that to be a dick. I'm just saying that I think some of these people are like, you know what? This ain't too bad. I mean, it depends on where you go to school. If you go to Best Berkeley or UCLA, <laughs> I would believe you're actually homeless. <laughs> Uh, uh, that's one of the reasons I did not go to Berkeley, even though I got a full ride there. It's like just just like the homeless issue on campus itself is a big problem, and it's not. Well, just do you need like a mortgage just to get a dorm? Yeah, 
And and just the cost of renting, you know, even off the campus. I mean, Berkeley doesn't really have like a, you know, dorms on campus. It's kind of urban, yeah. but even that is just really expensive. And if you're not a freshman or a transfer student, you're not really um, guaranteed housing on campus because there are just so many students there and they can't just give it to everyone. So you have to figure it out. And a lot of students just can't afford it. They just can't afford renting out a place in the Berkeley area because it's just so expensive for them. And not everyone can live off their parents' money on during college. And then they prefer to just sleep in the libraries and take shower at the gym and eat, you know, from, from the can somewhere. Hey, like if they know the right dumpsters, they could find some good stuff. <laughs> and that's another thing. There are a lot, that's why a lot of the students group actually shape themselves to support a lot of students that struggle with basic necessities as they're trying to get themselves through college. And, and I mean, like to tie everything together, like when it comes to this with the Prime Act and everything else, it's like if there's one thing America can unite around, just one thing, it's getting access to freaking food. Exactly. It almost seems like, you know, get, get, get the hippies, get the homeless college student, get the soccer mom, get everybody. And, and this, this actually makes sense. So, I mean, I hope, I hope to God this goes through, but I will go ahead and link to your piece in the show notes today. So people can go check it out, share it with their friends. Uh, you know, people want to keep up with everything you're doing, see your other work, learn more about this. How could they do so? Yeah, you can find me on young-voices.com slash talent. You will find my talent profile there, which lists all my work there, including all the podcast interviews and the articles. Plus, you can find me on uh, Orange County Register website as a columnist. I am um, I write there regularly and all my work is listed there. Absolutely. And you could put this feather in your hat. You are the most frequent guest on On the Run. So there wow. you go. You just secured <laughs> that today. Yay. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Well, you win. Now it's up Love to the Love to other. come on your show. It's always great. Yeah, it's always great having you here. Now the other slackers got to catch up. But anyway, <laughs> that's all, folks. Do me a favor. If you enjoy conversations like this, share the episode with a friend. And if you got just a minute of your day that you've got, you're trying to figure out, what do I do right now? Consider leaving the show a five-star rating and review. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to shows across Al Gore's amazing internet. Thank you. And as always, be good, be safe, and I'll talk to you later.